This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of stories that are difficult to talk about. Tonight is the first in a new series on suicide, particularly about suicide in the family. My guest is Dr. Nancy Rappaport. She is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of school programs in Cambridge. She's written a new book, In Her Wake, Her book is the story of her mother's suicide when Nancy was four years old and the ensuing many-year process of coming to terms with it and exploring the meaning of it for her life and also for her mother's life. Welcome to Safe Space, Nancy. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask you to begin by uh, telling the story of the day that your mother uh, did kill herself and, and what was going on at the time. Well, what's important for your listeners to know is I was four years old, so this is all something I've recreated both by um, reading newspaper articles because my parents were fairly prominent at the time, and they had been going through a custody battle for two years, and my mother had regained custody of the her six children. I was, <coughs> excuse me, the youngest of six children, and... Then the judge stayed the decision, which meant that the kids weren't coming home, and she went back to her apartment where her new husband and her lived and took a fatal overdose. So that was the backdrop of what I grew up with. My dad remarried. Uh, I became a child psychiatrist. I became a mother of three children. And at that point, I, uh, when I had my actually first daughter, who's now 19, I went back to what we talk about in the ghosts in the nursery. I really wanted to understand, um, both as a child psychiatrist, as a uh, new mother, and as a daughter, you know, what were the forces that came to play that had my mother kill herself? Right. How could you possibly begin to understand how she could do it, what she was going through? You know, I recently was was reading an essay by Tim O'Brien, and, and he said, you know, the, the name of my memoir is In Her Wake, A Child Psychiatrist Explores the Mystery of Her Mother's Suicide. And, you know, I spent 18 years interviewing people. I was lucky enough 10 years into this to, uh, her best friend had kept a trunk at the, um, and and uh, I received it when I was six years into writing this and then had a novel that my mother had been writing at the time of her death called The End of Freedom and had really devoted a significant amount of my life trying to sort this out. And what I can say is for any of us who've experienced a suicide, we are often left with unanswered mysteries because the answer dies with the person who kills himself. So what I've written is my personal truth, my best effort to come to a narrative of meaning. Um, And, you know, certainly some of it is colored by the idea that I'm a child psychiatrist and I know that suicide is connected to mental illness and, um, you know, a profound sense of despair. And I'm, But I'm circling around because also my mother was very competent and vibrant and had a lot to live for. So, Yeah, so you're trying to put the pieces together. I, I, I was struck in your book uh, in many ways that your courage in 
telling the story and asking questions, you you write about the silence that your that your dad and your your stepmom kind of wrapped you in silence, and your siblings really didn't talk about it with each other. And I wonder, did it feel like breaking a kind of taboo to begin talking about it, asking questions, raising the subject? You know, you have to remember this was 40 years ago, and we've moved a long way. But still, I can say, because I've done a fair amount of um, speaking about this memoir, that people will come up and whisper to me that they have a relative. I was just speaking recently, and someone uh, talked about that their grandmother had killed themselves, and their colleague had never known that, and she'd been working with her for 10 years. So we we tend to be fairly protective out of sharing that information. And, you know, that's a long history. Uh, and part of it is the sense that, you know, the, the suicide is somehow contagious, that it speaks badly about the family. And, you know, I would say that uniformly lots of people talk about silent grief with suicide. And so it wasn't just the particulars of my family, but it's often hard to put into words something that is difficult to understand and that each family member has a different relationship with the person who's killed themselves. You know, my older sister was 12, I was 4. She's going to have very different memories and trying to figure out how you build a collective memory about someone or a family memory can be really challenging. There's a beautiful passage in your book or set of passages where you describe each of your siblings and all the different ways that they've coped with it, which I thought so powerfully illustrated both the difference in their relationship with your mother, but also in their difference in coping with the pain of her loss. Thank you. (laughs) I I love that part of the book. They kept me company at some point because it was, you know, there's all sorts of places you can go to in terms of getting support if you've had a... uh, uh, family member kill themselves, you can go to the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, and um, there's support groups all over the country. And I sometimes wonder, had we as a family had a chance to sit down together and talk about what does this mean for us to have lost our mother, to my father to have lost, you know, the woman that he had divorced, you know, how does that impact us? And to have had a family discussion would have been extremely powerful. And, you know, we... My my brothers and sisters were so generous to agree to talk with me, and and yet, when it's very nice of you to say that I was courageous, but each time that I would have a conversation, whether it was with one of my mother's friends or my father or my brothers and sisters or the ex-lover of my mother, uh, I, I always had a certain amount of trepidation, like, what am I going to find out, and is it going to be something that is devastating for me. Of course, that's the definition of courage, though, isn't it? Persisting in the face of fear. It isn't the absence of fear. Oh, that's, thank you. That's the nice <laughs> way of reframing that. You just confirmed my use of that word, Nancy. <laughs> um, you know, part of my feeling about the courage of it, though, is um, you're writing about people that you love who are still alive, and you're writing about them in very honest ways. And I wondered about your own process of, you know, knowing how much to say, how much to hold back, whether the book could become wounding in its own right. Well, some of what you're talking about, I think lots of uh, people who write memoirs have have uh, wrestled with. There's the book Inventing the Truth, the Art and Craft of Memoir, which has a slew of, you know, very famous people who've 
talked about that process, and I think one of the things I took away from that is the idea that when you're writing a memoir, when it's a family memoir, you're probably not going to win a popularity contest because <laughs> right. you are, especially, you know, I come from a blended family of 13 um, children because my dad remarried um, uh, twice. And, you know, it's a, a little bit, if you put it in print, you're sort of trumping everybody because you're saying, this is my personal truth and I'm I'm going to put it out there. And that can feel as if it's... It, it's not as balanced as, as people would want. And I put an enormous amount of energy into talking with my brothers and sisters. I provided them with the novel so that my mother's novel, which I'd gotten in the, well, we all got received in the trunk, but wanted to hear about how they interpreted the novel. I interviewed them. I had my dad read the draft of, two drafts of my memoir and have him uh, give input. So I, I did know that ultimately I had to take responsibility that this was my story trying to come to some terms with my mother's suicide, but I did solicit uh, a lot of other points. And then, as you said, I had to make a lot of decisions about what you put in and what you leave out. And that's, again, I think that's probably what every author who writes a memoir has to struggle with because you're going to bore the reader if you start from when you were four and end up when you're 50. Right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about the forces that, that uh, contribute to silence in a family about a suicide. And I, I'm so glad you said, it. you know, this is not just particular to your family, but it's true of suicide generally there's this sense of shame and contagion that goes along with it um and I was curious you know when you said what does it mean about me you know you were you were four um as an adult we imagine that the four-year-old couldn't possibly uh blame themselves for not somehow being able to save her and yet you know kids have so many different beliefs of their own and I wonder how much that was part of your struggle what you're highlighting is so important because I know when I was talking with my dad and he was looking at my story, he was shocked because he had said something to me that really was said in a way as an effort to give an explanation to me where he had said that, you know, your mother was never the same after you were born. He didn't realize that I took away from that that if I hadn't been born, my mother would be alive. He was shocked at that. And what that says is that with families, it's so important to have open communication and have opportunities to be able to revisit an explanation so that it's not like when you talk about sex, you do it once and you never talk about it again, Mm. but that there's, you know, that it may be at the very beginning that you have a young child who doesn't really quite get what suicide is, but you always want to be as straightforward as you can in terms of saying that, you know, your your parent killed themselves, they might have been struggling with um, depression, and they, um, you know, they loved you very much, and we love you too, and, uh, you know, that we're all very sad about this. And I, my sense of why families are silent is also because there's so many different ranges of feelings you have when someone's killed themselves. You can feel angry, you can feel betrayed, you can feel, you can idolize the person. And trying to figure out how a family kind of 
digest all these feelings and certain people in the family can position themselves. So, Right, so if people have different feelings at different times. Yes. Right, it's very hard to be in sync with each other. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think about, you know, the statistics on parents after they lose a child, how hard it is for marriage to survive. And I think just two people grieve so differently, let alone... In your case, such a large brood. And it gets also where you can get very judgmental about how one person, you know, grieves. I mean, there's some researchers who will say repression is a really good thing. And (laughs) 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 just bottle it up. And, uh, And other people who would say, you know, the fact that you can talk about it openly, you know, somehow, you know, elevates you on the hierarchy of grief. And I... I really have come to a profound acceptance that we all have different paces of grieving and and feelings towards the person who's suicided, and we have to have a certain level of tolerance about that. Compassion. That, yes, that feels so important. I want to just take a moment to say this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Nancy Rappaport about her mother's suicide when Nancy was four and about the book In Her Wake that Nancy's written about that. I want to shift now to talking a little bit more about your mom. Um, The story begins with a description of her childhood as you've tried to piece it together, obviously not having been there. I found it particularly poignant that she had lost a sibling, interestingly enough, when when the sibling was four, as I understood it, and that in your mother's, in her mother's grief, rather your grandmother, that she may have felt sort of, oh, if it hadn't, you know, if only it had been you instead of the sister, or and just the devastation of it, the loss of a child and a family. I wondered if you could speak about the legacy of that and how you understood the impact of that on your mother. Again, I, I felt as I was writing this memoir, I was like Detective Nancy, because mm. I didn't have any knowledge about, I knew there was something around that my mother's sister had died, but we weren't clear what had happened. It was something that my sister vaguely remembered. And I was interviewing a man who had been a confidant of my uh, grandmother, and he told me the town and what he thought was the year that this had happened. And that's what allowed me to get a newspaper article that described my, uh, at the time, four-year-old aunt and my uh, eight-year-old mother and the fact that they had just moved into house nine days before and the four-year-old, um, Judy was her name, had gone to walk out into the new property and had drowned in a pond and was found after the grandmother came, my grandmother came home. And so here was my mother, I don't know, did she witness it? Did she not witness it? What kind of guilt did she follow? What kind of feeling did she have that then she was going to have six children and have a brood that was going to surround her, and then she's in a custody battle where she may lose her kids? And it had a quality of peeling back the onion to get to some, you know, core understanding, even though it was very elusive about my mother. In my training, also as a psychiatrist, I remember one of my teachers saying to me, if if you're working with a very suicidal patient, uh, a useful and relatively often unasked question is, is there anyone who wants you dead? Mm, That's a good question. I've never forgotten that. It was so powerful, and I was struck in reading your book 
you know, that at one time, the imagining that might maybe her mother might have felt like, oh, if it had, you know, if only it had been you and not the other sister, and wondering how much that had burdened your mother. That's what I wanted to do with the reader, though. I wanted to have... You did it, you did it. I, I wanted <laughs> to have you be, you know, Detective Anne. I was. And, and have us looking together so that sometimes it's not me standing up and saying, this is my opinion about it. I'm sort of placing the facts, lining them up as best as I can, and then saying, oh, what do we think about this? Because when you start the book, it's, it's very polarized. You have these newspaper articles that really make it sound like my mom was sort of competent, but high-strung, uh, a, a, you know, flamboyant, left the kids, my dad's, you know, coming in being somewhat of a savior, but then you have the pictures after which make it sound like my mom is this bereft mother that was, you know, destroyed by the power of my father. And what I want as I'm going along is to say this is very nuanced and complicated, not to burden the reader, but to not oversimplify. And the other aspect is I wanted a really clear message because I, when you talk about being a psychiatrist, when I work with suicidal patients, what I feel is the most toxic is that they believe they're expendable. And they truly believe if I'm not here, no one's really going to miss me. And that's lethal because the reality is there are 33,000 suicides that happen in this country, and that leaves over a quarter of a million people devastated. And that's, that's the, I, I really wanted to be able to get the reader to care about my mother and then understand the tragedy. It's, you describe so effectively this passage in the novel that she wrote where she describes the, the main character who suicides having a successful wake and, <clears throat> and everyone else sort of continuing on just fine and how much that showed you the distortion in her thinking about you know, how people would be unaffected. I was so mad at her when I read that. <laughs> Even though it was the character saying it, I thought, you know, here there's 40 pages after the main character kills himself and the son is sitting around, um, you know, arranging flowers at his mother's wedding. And I'm like, you are so clueless. That is so far from the truth. Yes, and it, but it paves the way. It yeah. paves away. You, I want to shift then now to the discussion about impulsivity. I just want to make sure I don't sound too mean to my mom. I didn't mean that like, she's clueless. You know, I just meant that, that that's a faulty logic to think that, that no one's really going to care and we're all going to be arranging flowers. Uh, that's how I heard it. That's exactly how I heard it. So I want to ask you more about impulsivity because there also is this tension for the reader sort of following you, was this an impulsive suicide or was it premeditated? And you have this very powerful sort of reflection on the deadly role of impulsivity with suicide and how being impulsive is even more dangerous than hopeless. And I wondered if you could say more about that. That was a profound recognition for me as a clinician. And it's shifted how I evaluate suicidal patients. Because what became clear not only in the research I did about my mother, but also in preparing the book and wanting to be well-versed and using it as a learning tool around suicide, that sometimes it's not around the severity of depression as much as it is the combination of mental illness, impulsivity, and substance abuse, and hopelessness. It's that lethal combination. So in the in impulsivity, that's that split second 
that the patient puts their foot on the accelerator and ends up being in a tree or puts a noose around their neck. Where the And that's why if you're depressed and you end up drinking a lot of alcohol, that's so dangerous because if you are someone who does things recklessly and you combine it with depression. So I looked at the quality of some of the decisions that my mom made in terms of um, quick uh, um, decisions, um, you know, leaving my dad with six kids and ending up being with a man that was 10 years younger than her, um, that those kinds of decisions were combined with a sense of hopelessness really worrisome. Yeah, so you were you were looking for clues that she could be impulsive mm-hmm. in other ways, and yet she writes this novel all about the main character who seems so much like herself, where she commits suicide, which so, makes it sound so premeditated. That's true, and where I, I again, she's dead, so I don't know what the answer is. I'm just circulating around, just as yes. you have so thoughtfully been doing with me during this interview. My understanding of that was she she had made a suicide attempt two years before she did a completed suicide, which is common with people who do completed suicides, that, that they've made an attempt before, which is why it's so important for folks to get treatment after a suicide attempt. And I thought of it as that she was trying to make some sense of what that suicide attempt had meant. And But again, I don't know, because I didn't get a chance to ask her, why did you have the, your main character um, you know, die by suicide and and was it to try to kind of work through a suicide attempt you'd meant or pave the way to a completed suicide? Right, so that's one of those unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to shift now to another kind of related subject in terms of the impact on you. What's clear reading your book is, is sort of your f- profound gratitude for your own children and your own current nuclear family. And you don't write much about self-doubt, about your ability to be a good mother before you had kids. But I found myself imagining myself in your position and thinking, wow, when I was two, my mother attempted suicide. When my, my mother you know, left us and she died when I was four, will I have it in me to be a good mother? And kind of the legacy of early mother loss. And I wondered if you could tell me something about that. Well, you know, I work with parents because I'm specialized working with teenagers, and I think all of us who are parents have some self-doubt about decisions we make on a daily basis. But I had a, a very, you know, I had a very doting father. I had a lot of what I would call other mothers in my life. I had a really good school um, that can make a huge difference in uh, children of suicide, that they have other adults that care about them in their lives, that they have a strong school, and they have sometimes having just sort of raw ingredients that are helpful. So if you tend to be kind of smart and, you know, athletic or have some kind of quality about you that makes you likable, that draws people in, that can help. And then, you know, I did become a child psychiatrist. Maybe I thought I was going to have a tutorial on being a good mom. So <laughs> <laughs> You learn something about that in training, don't you? <laughs> yeah. And I had, you know, I, I was really blessed. I have good kids and, you know, a good husband. So it made it, um, and a lot of therapy. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> so I found that actually very moving. Yeah. Also, the description of the work that you did when you were a teenager and I, I wondered if you could say, how, how do you feel that that made a difference for you? Well, again, I, so it's, 
this whole idea that I've lived fairly permeable with my boundaries so that my patients who have been enormously generous with me talking about my own eternal life, I always uh, think, well, you know, the human condition, I I was not a perfect seventh grader and I was getting myself in a fair amount of trouble, you know, including thinking it was a brilliant idea to run away and spend the night in a school auditorium, which isn't the most amount of creativity, and uh, being a minor league uh, kleptomaniac where I would, you know, steal classmate pencils and various things. And my stepmom and my dad at a certain point thought it would be a good idea for me to see a therapist. And it's probably no surprise that I work in a school-based health center with kids. That And that what was so helpful to me was to have someone who would listen to me so intently and that I could share when you were talking about the guilt I had, you know, that I could share a dream that I'd had that has haunted me as growing up, which was that I somehow knew and no one else knew that my mother had killed herself and that I'd left the room and I hadn't saved her, which, you know, my therapist was able to say, you know, nothing you said or did uh, caused your mother to kill herself. And that's another aspect that I would say to people who are, you know, family members to children of suicide is to really be explicit about that, that nothing they said or did caused this to happen. And that can be confusing because there could have been a big fight even as a teenager between a parent, but it's still not the definitive uh, cause. And and him saying that to you, that was enough to help you really let go of that? And having a caring relationship where I could, I could be open and be cared about. Were you the only one of your siblings that had therapy as a, as a child? When, when I was little, yes. I mean, that being that young. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it was a really protective, wonderful investment your parents, cho- you know, your dad and stepmom chose to make for you. And I actually paid for it myself at a certain point, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think you said you started babysitting. Yeah. Yes. Yep. You were committed. You Reduced were rate. Then. That was really important. <laughs> We've had a lot of babysitting otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I know we're going to have to end in a minute. And I, I wanted to ask you, since I know that you work so much with suicide, and if you, if you had a hope for how this book could help... Um, either people, families recovering from suicide or for parents, and you know, considering suicide, what would your hope be about how this book could make a contribution? That first for someone who's suicidal to know that no one is expendable and that we're all loved and that that would be for, the, for someone who is suicidal and to have them understand uh, how, what an impact losing someone to suicide in a family has and, you know, imploring them to get the help that they need. Mm. And, you know, with families, I often get uh, com- communicated, and it's so wonderful, and people can find me on my website, innerwake.com, but people will tell me about how comforted they are that they may have had a, they might be a grandparent and have had a parent kill them, you know, a, a their daughter kills themselves and then they'll have children that are left afterwards and they'll be so relieved to think, you know what, with the right support, my grandchildren will be okay. And I want to be able to say that this is a horrible loss and this is how I navigated through grief. And I'm sharing it with you because I had training, I had, I've devoted a lot of energy, I was lucky enough to be a decent 
hopefully good writer, and so I can bring you into this world around my uh, process of healing. And it's not a self-help book in terms of like these five steps, right. but it's meant to be a source of comfort. So I that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to provide comfort and I've been told I have, which is remarkably rewarding. I think for me, Nancy, your book not only provides comfort, but it provides an invitation to become your, the detective in your own healing. That for all of us, regardless of whether suicide is in our family, that you can go back and find out more about your story and interview people, and that in that process, heal your own wounds, which is a wonderful inspiration. Thank you so much, Nancy. I'm honored to be here. So this is Dr. Ann at Safe Space. I've been talking to Dr. Nancy Rappaport, the author of In Her Wake, the story of her mother's suicide. Next week, I'll be continuing the series on suicide in the family. I'll be talking to Dr. David Treadway, also about a memoir he wrote about suicide in his family. If you have a request or suggestion for the show, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.